All right. Good morning again. If I have not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Alan Pittman. I have the pleasure of serving as the senior pastor as well as one of our elders here at Living Hope. And we're absolutely thrilled that you're worshiping with us today, whether you're here in the building or whether you're worshiping online. If you're worshiping online, we'd love for you to come sometime and worship with us here in the building. Um, and if uh, I've not had a chance to meet you yet, I would love that chance. And I'll be out in the foyer after the service was over with. You can swing by and say howdy to me. That'd be great. Um, hopefully when you came in, you picked up a worship guide. We'll look at that in just a moment. Uh, but on the back of the worship guide is a place where you can take some notes um, through the sermon. And um, we'll get to that in just a second. I did want to remind you of a couple of things. If you're a church member, don't forget uh, that this morning, right after the service, after dismissal, we will have a short um, little meeting to vote on the budget for this coming year. But we do ask you to pick your kids up first so that others can be here. And then the other announcement I want to let you know about, and perhaps you've heard us talk about it over the last few weeks, maybe you saw a sign on the doors you came in, um, we are having um, a play coming up this weekend, um, not this weekend, but the one coming up, and it's A Wonderful Life. It's happening this coming Saturday and Sunday, uh, uh, sorry, Friday and Saturday, Friday and Saturday, Friday and Saturday. It's happening Friday and Saturday. Uh, I looked at my notes to make sure I said the right thing, and I said the wrong thing. Friday at 7 p.m., and Saturday at 2 p.m., and 7 p.m., and we would love for you to come. It's an awesome uh, production and a great chance for you to invite friends, family, coworkers, somebody like that to come with you um, and be a part of that. It's happening in this room uh, on Friday and Saturday. There is a small fee. There's $5 uh, to get a ticket, uh, but 100% of those dollars given are going straight to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions. Uh, you will be blessed. Your family and friends that come with you will be blessed as well. I encourage you to come and be a part of that. All right, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and uh, grab it. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a seat near you, underneath you, around you. You can use that. We'll be in the Old Testament book of Micah. It's a short book. It's in the prophets. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. It's after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. All right, that's where it is. You can go to your table of contents, and it'll be there as well. Uh, normally, we will preach through an entire book of the Bible, um, and uh, the interesting thing is, uh, in the spring, in January or February, we're going to start up, we're going to finish Acts, and we're going to start up a new book study, and that's the book of Micah. And uh, so we'll look at Micah beginning in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 7 uh, in, in next year. Um, but this season, during the Christmas season, during Advent uh, time frame, we are walking through um, the scripture from Genesis to Revelation over about five or six weeks and looking at this promise of a coming king. And we know that coming king is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we're looking at how he's promised in the Old Testament, how he comes in the New Testament, and how he's promised to come again in the end of the New Testament. Along with that, we have something going on. And you may have seen it on the front of your worship guide. There's a QR code. You can also get to it straight by going to our, um, our website. But on this QR code, it'll take you to a Bible study or devotional that we're doing. We have two a week that go with um, in between the sermons to kind of put this series together. I encourage you, if you've not done that Bible study, to go ahead and jump on that with your family, and you'll be blessed as you walk through Scripture uh, together with the church family. Uh, like I said, today we are in Micah, and we're going to be looking at chapter 5. But before I turn to that, I wanted to just reflect on the fact that I loved growing up in a small town 
up in northeast Texas. I'd normally just say East Texas, but uh, it's White House, Texas. And I saw a guy come in this morning, met a guy from Gladewater. Maybe he's heard of White House. Maybe the rest of you, I don't know if you've heard of White House or not. I guarantee it, if you've heard of White House, it's probably only because of one thing, and that's a guy by the name of Patrick Mahomes. If Patrick Mahomes wasn't from White House like I am, then you probably would never have heard of it. Most Texans would never have heard of White House, much less Americans in general. It's a small town, and I enjoyed growing up in it. And the reason I said that is not so I could talk about me or Mahomes or a White House, but rather so I can say uh, 7,000 miles from that small town of White House, Texas, is another small town. And that small town is the town of Bethlehem. Uh, it's only population, uh, population's only 28,000 people, and I guarantee it, the only reason you would have heard of Bethlehem is because of a guy that's from there. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? Jesus was born there, and at the time that he was born there, it was only about 2,000 people. It was a small, insignificant town, and yet God chose to use it to do something very huge. You know about uh, the baby Jesus being born, but you may have, and the wise men coming to see baby Jesus, but you may have a few details out of order. Like, for instance, we don't know that there were only three wise men. Maybe there were more. Uh, he wasn't, I know this is going to be a shock to you, he was not there when the baby had just been born. They were there a little bit later. But perhaps you're familiar with the wise men being at uh, the scene there after Jesus was born. If Bethlehem was a little town, how in the world did the wise men know to go to Bethlehem? Why did they land there? I want to read a passage about the wise men before we actually get to Micah. I know I told you to turn to Micah. Sorry about that. We're going to read um, six verses out of Matthew chapter 2, and you're going to see how the wise men knew to go to Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 6 says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, and they said to the king, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, or the anointed one, or the Messiah, the coming king, was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Verse 6, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. In other words, you're insignificant. But for from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd, sorry, who will shepherd my people Israel. So the only reason the wise men knew to go to Bethlehem is because of what a prophet of God had said about Bethlehem some 700 years earlier. Verse 6 is a direct quote from the book of Micah that was written 700 years before Jesus was born. So let's turn to Micah. Micah chapter 5. Let's consider what the prophet Micah shared with the people 700 years before Jesus was born. Micah 5, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 6, says this. And when we get to verse 2, you'll recognize it because we read it a moment ago in Matthew. The prophet says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against you. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. I'll give you some historical background in a moment. He says, But you, O Bethlehem, 
Ephratha, I never know how to say that word, I know that's not correct, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give to them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he, this coming king, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. As I said in the spring, we'll start a study of the book of Micah and we'll look more at the historical reference that takes place here. This morning our focus is on the coming king, Jesus, the one born in Bethlehem. And so I won't hit all of the details. Stay tuned and you'll hear it in a coming week ahead. It's interesting because the book of Micah, this phrase or this uh, sorry this section of verses in Matthew chapter 5 is referenced in the Targum and I don't know if you've heard of the Targum or not but the Targum was basically the Hebrew Bible and commentary of that time period and the Targum saw this passage as a promise of the coming Messiah the anointed one the coming king and so this morning we look back at this and see how it points to Jesus some of the historical background here is this Assyria was another country that was pressing in on the nation of Israel and on the city of Jerusalem. They'd already been causing problems in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now they're coming after Judah. And we see here that Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria, has besieged the city of Jerusalem in the year of 701 B.C. It's very likely that verse 1 is in reference to that besieging that they did back in the year 701. If you look at verse 1, you'll see that Jerusalem is under distress. They're unable to establish an army that can protect them from the impending doom coming from Assyria. They're not able to defend themselves. It even says in verse 1 that the judge of Israel, side note, the judge of Israel is something more important than the judge. He's actually the king, but because he's been humiliated in such a way, Micah doesn't refer to him as the king. He refers to him as the judge. And he says the judge of Israel, the judge of Judah, he he is humiliated because he's been struck across the cheek. You see that in verse 1. Perhaps it's the idea of him even getting struck across the cheek with his own rod or his own staff. So the king is not able to defend the people of of Jerusalem, and doom is coming. And then we shift the scene in verse 2, and it moves south. If you know much about Israel, you'll realize that Jerusalem is only about six miles north of Bethlehem. So Bethlehem is just down the road a bit, only six miles south of there. And the scene shifts from Jerusalem to Bethlehem because Jerusalem is doomed. There's no hope for them whatsoever until we come to verse 2. And in verse 2, we see that there is a promised king coming. It says that a ruler will come from Bethlehem. It's a hint that the monarchy or the lineage of David will receive a new start of some sort in the future with a new leader, a new king, a new ruler. It's a continuation of the covenant that God had made with David. If you were here last week, you heard a message in 
First Chronicles of how God promised to establish the kingdom of Israel through the line of David and that he would reign and his people would reign forever over the, the, the nation of Israel. And here we see that, that this promise that had made, been made three centuries prior is going to continue and that God is sending a new leader. Look at verse 2. It says in there that this ruler is coming forth from of old, from ancient days. And there's a lot of conversation about what is meant here. As it talks about coming from old and from ancient days, what is it getting at? The idea is that either it's in reference to an ancient lineage of David, because David was alive 300 years prior, and here comes somebody from his family, and or it could simply be pointing to the fact that this ruler is of divine origin, that he is God. The reality is, I think it's a little bit of both. It's pointing towards the Messiah, this coming King, Jesus, that he is different, that he is, he is not only a man, he is, he is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And God is referenced as being of ancient of days because God has no starting point whatsoever. Then we look at verse 3. And in verse 3, we see that God's going to give Judah... It's going, he's going to give the southern kingdom of Judah over to Assyria, but things will begin to change when the new ruler is born. And then kind of summarizing verses 4 through 6, we see that God will clearly use this ruler to take care of his people. If you look at verses 4 through 6, we see that we've transitioned from the doom and gloom of verse 1, and now we see hope, and that hope is found because of this coming ruler, the coming king, the Messiah, Jesus. He would bring uh, to them security and peace and deliverance from Assyria and their enemies. But there is so much more going on here than just what is historically happening in the year 701 B.C. It, it spans the gap towards the coming of the Messiah that would happen some 700 years later. Because born in this little town of Bethlehem is Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he fulfilled everything that the Old Testament had pointed to about a coming king. If you were here a few weeks ago when this series started, we started in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And we looked how Adam and Eve had sinned against God and how punishment came because of their sin against God. And yet when God came down to declare the punishments and the consequences as he spoke to the serpent, to Satan, who had deceived Adam and Eve and, and they had chosen to sin based on that deception, God looked at the serpent and said that an offspring from the woman, an offspring from Eve would come and that offspring would have victory over Satan. And so throughout history, they've been looking for this coming offspring of Eve. And with the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, he fulfills that promise. So what's the significance of Jesus being born in Bethlehem? There's several things. Number one, God chose it. That's the most important thing. Another thing, uh, the word Hebrew word Bethlehem is actually two words. Bet is house. Lehem is bread. And so Jesus was born at the place that's called the house of bread. And let's think for a minute. Didn't Jesus say something about him being the bread of life? Also, Bethlehem was the city of David, right? 
And David is from Bethlehem. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And it's pointing to the fact that Jesus is the coming king that's in the dynasty or the lineage of King David. And so Jesus is born in Bethlehem, tying him forever to David. I I want you to look at the notes now. At the top of your notes, it says this. It's the summary of this whole text as it relates to Jesus. It says this, that Jesus is the shepherd king who brings peace to the world. Jesus is the shepherd king who brings peace to the world. Hopefully you'll see that there on your notes. And then uh, on the screen right now it says the word shepherd. But the overarching theme needs to be heard first. And then we'll look at each one individually. Jesus is the shepherd king who brings peace to the world. The first aspect I want us to look at each aspect is shepherd. He is the shepherd. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, it's talking about the coming king, the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus. It says that he shall stand and shepherd his flock. Jesus is our shepherd. This ruler who would stand and actively shepherd his people is in reference to Jesus. And the way that he would stand and lead his people and shepherd his people is found in the rest of verse 4. It says that he will do so in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord. How in the world is Jesus able to do it? Easily. He is the Lord himself. And so he's coming as the Lord and he's standing firm and in his majesty and in his strength, he will shepherd his people. Most of us in this room probably are not very well versed in raising sheep. Now, I don't know, maybe some of you did. Anybody in here, just curious, uh, any of you in here ever like raise sheep? Any of you ever been a shepherd? All right, there's one. All right, we got one shepherd. Lenny's our, our lone shepherd, all right? So the reality is, I don't know much about sheep. I, I, I only thing I know about wildlife, uh, not wildlife, all I know about livestock is my, my granddaddy raised cattle. He didn't raise sheep. Uh, if you drive through Mills County, which is where Goldthwait is, you'll see like 40,000 sheep and goats. Maybe they know more about it than I do. But sheep, uh, I don't know much about them, but we have had this impression that sheep are dumb. But perhaps the better way for us to phrase a sheep is not that they're dumb animals, but that they are dependent animals. And I'm not being kind. I'm saying they really are smart animals, but the truth of the matter is a sheep is dependent on the other sheep around them and the humans in their lives. You see, they have a strong instinct to follow the sheep in front of them. They're dependent on each other. They just kind of follow each other. They have no real method to to protect themselves. You know how a sheep protects himself? He gets with his flock and hopes that he's protected and insulated by the others, or he tries to run, right? That's the only way. A sheep's not going to fight a lion. He can't fight a lion. There's no way he's dependent on others to protect him. So the role of a shepherd in the life of a sheep is to guide the sheep. He's going to protect the sheep. He's going to meet their needs. In fact, the shepherd's going to have a rod or a staff. And as you think about this rod or staff or the stick that a shepherd has, it has a couple of purposes. And those purposes are he's going to use it to prod or prompt or push or encourage the sheep to go in the right way. He uses it to guide the sheep, right? But what is he going to do with that sheep? I'm mean, sorry, that, that, that rod or staff, if, if a lion or something comes after his animals, he's going to use that to try to scare the thing away and to beat it off. So the staff is used to guide the sheep and also to protect the sheep. Throughout Scripture, we see that God's people are referred to as sheep. It's 
used that way in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you also see that not only are we sheep, it says that God himself is our shepherd. And so as we look at the fact that Jesus is the shepherd king, he is the shepherd, then we have to acknowledge that we are his sheep and that he is guiding us, directing us, leading us, and protecting us as a shepherd protects. People who lead God's people, pastors, elders, kings, priests, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, you're like, wait a minute, we have kings and priests? No, but I'm talking about Old Testament and New Testament. All throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's leaders are referred to, those who lead God's people are referred to as shepherds many times. Last week, we saw that David was a shepherd. God took him from being a shepherd who took care of sheep to taking care of God's people. Did you know that in the New Testament, when the word pastor is used or shepherd is used, they're used interchangeably. It's the same word. When we think about a pastor, when we think about an elder, we are to be shepherds. We're under shepherds, under Jesus, who is the chief shepherd. We are to guide, protect, and meet the needs of people. So I encourage you as a side note, when you have opportunity, I know many of you do, but when you have an opportunity, would you pray for us as your pastors and shepherds to, that, and elders, that we would shepherd you well, that we would guide you well, and that we would do so in God's strength and for God's glory. So Micah points to the coming ruler or leader who is a shepherd. I'm not going to take the time to look up these verses, but you may want to jot them down. A couple of places Jesus is referenced as a shepherd. First, in John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says of himself, I am the good shepherd. There's a whole section in John 10 where you can read about that. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus is referenced as the chief shepherd. So I want us to think about a couple of questions. Actually, I may have three on this one. Uh, three questions on here, and, and they'll have it on the screen there. As our shepherd, Jesus guides, protects, and meets our needs. As our shepherd, Jesus guides, protects, and meets our needs. And so my question for you is, which one of these do you prefer? Do you prefer that Jesus guide you, protect you, or meet your needs? I think many of us would not want to think about our preferred method is his guidance. Let, let me back up, sorry. What I didn't say is this. When I use the word guidance, it infers with it correction. And so whenever we think about Jesus meeting our needs or correcting us or protecting us, we probably are not going to list correction right away. But the reality is this. We need Jesus to correct us and guide us and show us the right way to go. And so the question is, when Jesus corrects you, do you resist his correction or do you respond accordingly? All too often, we want to run the other direction. All too often, we'll hear somebody preach or teach or we'll go to a class and we'll hear something presented and we'll, we'll, we'll hear what God's saying to us to correct us and we want to run and avoid it. The reality is we need the correction of God in our lives. He is our shepherd. Receive his correction. So my next question is this. How open are you to correction from and accountability with other believers? What I'm not saying is this, a human being is anything equal to Jesus who is our great shepherd. 
But I am saying that the great shepherd uses individuals in our lives to hold us accountable and to guide us. My question is, when we receive correction from other believers, how do we respond to it? All right, so Jesus is our shepherd king. So we've looked at the fact that he's our shepherd. Let's now look at the fact that he is our king. This coming ruler would be king. We see that in verse 2, that he's saying that a ruler or a king is coming. There's a promise of a coming ruler and king. And, and everything from verse 1 to verse 2 shifts and changes from doom and gloom because now we have a ruler and a king that can do something about it. You see, the king at the time of Sennacherib coming in and attacking the city of Jerusalem, the king was powerless. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't defend the city of Jerusalem. In fact, he got slapped upside the face. He's not doing the job. But the good news is this. A new king is coming, and with Jesus, he is all-powerful. And we can trust him and follow him. Everything shifts from doom and gloom, and now there's hope because of the mention of the coming king. He's the complete opposite of the current king or the judge of Israel. He's the only answer to their enemy. Assyria's breathing down their neck, and the only answer they have is the coming king who is God himself, Jesus Christ. Deliverance and salvation. It talks about how deliverance and salvation would come from this coming king. All the hope that is found in these verses are because of the coming king. Look down at verses 4 through 6, and all the hope is because of the coming king. This king would come through David's line, and we talked about that already, and how God had made a covenant of a perpetual royal line through the king of, king of David, and that, that, that because of that, this coming king would come and reign and rule. I want you to look down in verse 4, and as it references the king in verse 4, it says, the people of God would dwell secure at the end of verse 4, for now he, the king, shall be great to the ends of the earth. This king, Jesus, is not just king of Israel. This king, Jesus, is not just king of Judah. This king, Jesus, is not just the king of the United States of America. This king, Jesus, is king over everything. In Scripture, we see that there's a desire to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. In fact, in our series of the book of Acts that we've kind of pressed pause on, we have three or four more weeks left in, we're looking at the idea that we're to take the gospel to the ends of the earth because Jesus is king over all. A king is to be revered. A king is to be respected. A king is to be followed. And a king, when he is in place indicates that there must not be a rival. It's interesting, my D group and I are reading through uh, 1 Samuel right now. Then we're going to turn the corner to 2 Samuel. Then we're going to read 1 and 2 Kings. And it's interesting in the life of especially the northern kingdom of Israel, over and over again, how there are rivals and how there's struggles and how there's attempts at, at, at a coup and all of those things but the reality is that a king must not have a rival because he alone is in uh, authority and so when we reflect back to the book of matthew whenever the wise men in matthew chapter 2 that i read a moment ago when the wise men come and herod finds out and they're like hey herod where should we go to find this king of the jews herod becomes very angry and troubled because he's like uh-uh there ain't but one king around here and i am he there is no other king 
And so the story goes on from there, if we had read the rest of chapter 2 of Matthew, that he ordered the children, the boys uh, of a certain age, to be killed in the city of Bethlehem because he's trying to rid the rival king. You're like, Alan, why do you point all that out? Because of this. Since Jesus is king of all, then you and I are sinning against him whenever we set anything or anyone up as his rival, for there is no rival against Jesus. There's no one that's worthy of our honor and praise except Jesus himself. He is king and he's to be in charge of everything, including our lives, every aspect of it. But all too often, we make ourselves king of our own lives. So here's the questions that I have for you. The first one is a, is, is a question. The second is about the adjustments. It says, who has the throne of your life? Who has the throne of your life? Is it Jesus that has your throne or is it you? Are you trying to control your life and do things your way? Or are you acknowledging him as king and submitting to his ruling in your life? And the question that I have to follow that up with is, what adjustments is he calling you to make? We need to trust in his power. We need to submit to him. We need to obey him. We need to follow him. We need to let him reign and rule in our lives, in our words, in our thoughts, in our activity online, in our interaction with other people. The way we live our lives should reflect that he is king. All too often, our lives seem to indicate that someone else is sitting on the throne instead of him. He alone is worthy of our worship and praise. So I encourage you to take steps of obedience. For some of you, you need to say yes to Jesus for the first time and trust in him for salvation. Others of you, you're like, Jesus is on the throne. It's just I'm trying to kick him off the throne and live my life my way. You need to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. We need to respond. We need to repent of sin and allow him to take his rightful place. So I said that Jesus is our shepherd king And then the end of that statement was that he's come to bring peace to all the world. So I want us to look at this concept of peace. Peace is found in verses 4 through 6. The word peace is used beginning there in verse 5, but it's alluded to in so many ways in verses 4 through 6. That peace is found in his security and the peace that he brings. It says that we will dwell secure in him. It says that he is their peace, that he will deliver us. If you look down in verse 6, you'll see in verse 6 that the Assyrians and their enemies are absolutely no match for the king of peace. Verse 5a, the beginning of verse 5 says this. This coming king, Jesus himself, it says, he shall be their peace. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't just give us peace? He is peace there is a difference right if someone offers us peace then he or she doesn't really have full control over everything like a king could be in control not 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 jesus but a king could be in control of his country and there could be peace but something from the outside could come in and interfere with that peace but the reality is that jesus is our peace and therefore no matter what life throws our way we have peace when we have jesus He is their peace. There's a sense of a formal title here. When it says he shall be their peace, it's not all that different than a contemporary of Micah by the name of Isaiah. Do you remember Isaiah? In Isaiah, you can jot this down. We're not going to turn to it. But Isaiah 
chapter 9, verse 6, when it's talking about the coming king, it says that he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What does it say? Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. So in Micah, it's clearly pointing to Jesus because he is the only one who embodies peace like that. What does peace look like? I'll tell you what peace doesn't necessarily mean. Peace does not necessarily mean the absence of war. It doesn't necessarily mean the absence of strife. It doesn't necessarily mean the absence of hardship. Rather, peace that comes from God means salvation and assurance even though these other things may continue. In other words, life could be chaotic and crazy and beyond your control and going down the proverbial tubes, but the reality is if you have Jesus, you have peace. You see, peace is not defined by our outer circumstances, but rather it's defined by the one who lives within us. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then the Holy Spirit lives within you, and he will give you peace regardless of your circumstances. We've been talking about this concept of God's peace in the midst of our hardship for the last few weeks, and I want it to sink into us that peace from God is resting in God no matter the circumstances around us. I want us to read where that peace comes from. It'll be on the screen, but Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, and in the middle of Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy about this coming king who would be killed for the forgiveness of our sins, this man of sorrows. It says in Isaiah 53, 54, sorry, 53 verses 4 and 5 about Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus was crucified that we might have peace with God. And then we can flip over to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And here's what that says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to pause for a moment and talk about what peace really means. What does it mean to say that Jesus is our peace? And here's what it means. God created all of us to be in proper relationship with him, to be in fellowship with him and to follow him, to worship him and have him as God and king and sovereign in our lives. But the reality is all of us sin against God. We go our own way, do our own thing. And because of sin in our life, we are separated eternally forever from a holy, perfect God. God can have nothing to do with sin, but praise Jesus, literally, he came with an answer, and all along it was God's good pleasure and plan to send his son, Jesus in the flesh, who would come to die for our sins, that he would go to the cross in spite of his perfect perfection, that he did not deserve death, that he would die a death that you and I deserve, in order that if we place our faith and our trust in Jesus, we might be forgiven of our sins. And so Jesus was crucified on a cross, taking our punishment, and was raised three days later, overcoming sin, death, and the grave. And the reality is, because of that price that was paid for us, if we trust in Jesus as our Savior, then we are made at peace with God because we are in proper relationship with Him. 
This morning, some of you go, man, I just want some peace from my chaos in my life. But the reality is this. We're not talking about how life can be easier. We're talking about in, in, internal and eternal peace. And that peace is only found when we confess our sins to God and trust in Jesus' finished work on our behalf. So my question is this. Have you trusted in Jesus for that peace? Peace is only possible when we are right with God. Peace continues, though. Once you become a follower of Jesus, peace continues as we rest in him and trust him with our very lives. And there's an interesting passage in John chapter 14 that I'm about to read. And in this passage, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's talking about how he's about to go and face his death, and then he's going to return to the Father in heaven, and that when he leaves, he's going to send the Holy Spirit to them, and he's explaining why this all matters And here's what it says in John chapter 14, verses 25 through 28, all the words of Jesus. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And then it says, peace I live with, leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. He's saying the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us whenever we follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And he brings us peace as he guides us in our lives. And then I want to read one other verse. Because not only do we receive the peace of God because Jesus is our peace, but we are to then share the peace of God with others as we seek to live with other uh, people in our lives. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 18. Paul says, as he talks about interaction with other people, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So not only should we experience the peace of Christ that comes to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ, um, but we also should be extending that peace to others as well. And so I've got a couple of questions in this section to ask you. Here they are. Are you at peace with God? You're like, I hope so, I think so, like I'm trying to live a good life. No, 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 I'm not asking, are you being a good moral person? I'm asking you, are you at peace with God? There's only one way to be at peace with God, and that is by trusting in Jesus as your Savior, not in yourself as your Savior. Have you said yes to Jesus? What excitement it was a moment ago to get to watch Joan get baptized and for me to be able to baptize her. In the number of years I've been pastoring, I don't think I've ever baptized somebody and saw so much joy and heard so much joy as soon as someone came out of the water because she was excited about what God had done in her life not in that baptism but as an indication of what he had already done in her life and that the joy just filled her heart joy and peace are not all that different from one another we can have joy in the midst of life If we have the peace of Christ, it's within us. And the only way that we have the peace of Christ is by trusting in his work on our behalf. Have you said yes to Jesus? If you haven't, today, don't leave this place without the peace of Christ. Say yes to Jesus this morning. The second question on the screen is this. Are you at peace with fellow humans? You see, we're called to be at peace with God 
And then we're called to be at peace with other people as well. So this morning, it might be that you need to repent of your sins to Jesus, trusting in him as your Savior. This morning, it might be that you need to repent of sins against another brother or sister. And it might be that you need to find that brother and sister and have a conversation with them to extend the peace of Christ to each other. This morning, as we've looked at Micah chapter 5, we've seen a reminder of who Jesus is. And it's there on your outline. It says this, that Jesus is the shepherd king who brings peace to the world. Jesus is the shepherd king who brings peace to the world. Are you living in that reality? Have you experienced him as your shepherd and your king? Do you have the peace of Christ in you? In what ways is he calling you to respond to, respond to him this morning? In just a second, I'm going to lead us in prayer. At the end of that prayer, we'll have a couple of songs that we'll sing together as a congregation. During the second song, some offering plates will be passed. If you've come with an offering, you can uh, place that in there. If you've got a connection card you want to fill out and drop that in, you can. Uh, But in either one of those two songs, if you need to come and pray at the altar, if you need to grab somebody and bring them to pray with you at the altar, if you need to come and pray with me, if you need to say yes to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, say yes to him this morning. How is God leading you, and are you going to respond to his leadership in your life? Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you this morning honoring you and worshiping you for you alone are worthy of worship and praise. God, we thank you for this reminder of who you are, that you sent your son Jesus as the coming king and the way that he came was to be our shepherd, to be our king and to bring us peace. And so, Father, I pray that this morning you would give us wisdom on how to respond to your message. If we need to make adjustments in our lives and repent of sin, if we need to go to another brother or sister and, and share something with them, if we, if we are to just sit still in your presence and experience your peace, God, I don't know how you're leading us, but I pray that you would do that and we would say yes to you. If you're correcting us, may we receive that correction. If you're guiding us, may we follow your guidance. If you're protecting us by keeping us from a sin, that we would acknowledge that we need to follow your direction in that line in our lives god may you be glorified may you be honored in this place it's in the powerful name of jesus that i pray amen